Welcome, KTUH listeners. You know, in this kind of new year with a new president here in the United States, I think we think about um, identity and space very much uh, in relation to the United States into like what it means to be American. What does it mean? And even that is a big question because now it's like, well, what does it mean? You know, are we a diverse country? Are we um, American of whiteness? And then it makes you think about how people form their sense of identity. And so today I wanted to talk about um, a sense of identity and belonging from a more multicultural perspective, specifically from a very politically, um, I guess, disrupted situation all the way in Bangladesh. And so I am so privileged to have, boy, um, Morseline, who I had met from the East West Center, what, two, three years ago? Two years uh, ago, yeah. Three, was it three? Yeah. Uh, and Morseline is doing, continuing your studies in Finland right now. I'm going to just let you speak about your situation, but I wanted the listeners to know that we are connected from the UH, uh, from the East West Center, and also um, as a PhD, PhD student studying in the Department of Sociology, your research material on the Bangladesh, uh, on the Rohingyas specifically, sorry, I didn't mention that earlier, their situation in Bangladesh now um, is very important and interesting. So Morseline, welcome to K2H, first of all, and, and welcome all the way from Finland and tell us what you're doing in Finland. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Crystal, for inviting me. It's such a great opportunity and I'm, um, I, I'm thrilled and excited to talk to you today. I'm always excited to talk about my work. Um, it, it's a great opportunity to talk about the underprivileged people and um, to give a voice to them who are struggling. <clears throat> so I think uh, from this perspective, I actually started my PhD and my thesis is on Rohingya people, as you know, as you have mentioned that they um, are people, <clears throat> stateless people um, who are um, struggling in the camp, uh, and their lives, the, the daily lives become um, a struggle. And um, yeah, that was my starting point to um, uh, pick the topic as my research topic of PhD. And uh, right now I'm Finland, as you have mentioned. Um, I have passed all of my courses. I have passed my comprehensive exam, which is a qualifying exam, uh, second phase of qualifying exam. Uh, and um, after finishing my after finishing my qualifying exam, I thought like, okay, um, I was going to do my um, uh, dissertation uh, proposal defense, but then it was becoming more and more difficult to live in the U.S. because I was living in the dorm, and uh, my husband was living uh, in Finland, and um, that was quite a difficult time when everything was in lockdown, and mm -hmm. I. I was set out to go to Finland um, in the summer, but my flight got canceled, and um, I was I was extremely anxious to stay in the dorm and don't know if my health insurance could cover COVID expenses. Uh, what happened if I uh, catch the virus? Uh, who who is going to take care of me? Because I don't have anyone, uh, any friends or anyone uh, living in Hawaii. So those things were like bothering me and I was struggling with that situation. And that time I decided, okay, um, are, you, are you frozen? Okay, can you hear me? I can hear you, but you were frozen too, but just okay. It just, just yeah, I can hear you. So yeah, uh, during that time I decided, okay, that's uh, probably 
uh, that would be probably a good idea if I can go to Finland. Um, in that way, I would be living with my husband. And it was psychologically also challenged time because, you know, every day you'd see that many people are get, getting affected, many people are dying, and you would hear horrible news. So it was a difficult time to cope. So I thought like, okay, we should definitely be together. And that time I um, flew to Finland. And yeah, since then I'm here. Right, okay. And you're still managing to do your um, your studies all the way over yeah. there. Yeah, yeah what's the temperature that... like now? Is it, uh, what, what, what degree? Give us a sense. Today is actually very uh, much better. It's, it's uh, quite better, it's minus five today. <laughs> okay blue skies no it's cloudy it's very cloudy um, oh. during this time january uh december it's very cloudy here it's very gloomy yeah it, it takes a while to adjust you know from the sunny days from sunny weather of oh, hawaii yeah it's, quite difficult. it's a bit difficult yeah, yeah. but, but thank god mm-hmm. i was just going to say for better or for worse we come together virtually, you know, when yeah. you're miles apart, 12 hours apart, we're still able to talk about things that connect us, you know, through yeah. the bridge. So, yeah. um, you know, just giving us that little sense of your <clears throat> displacement during COVID and, and uncertainties of um, when to go where and what it's like to be in a new place kind of brings us a little bit easier into your research because talking about the Rohingyas, in Bangladesh, first of all, we'll let you kind of explain the situation um, and 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 what the kind of the the complexity of their situation kind of arised from. But you know, I was just going to say that your sense of displacement is you know to compare to how these refugees have their sense of displacement is just it's all about perspective, isn't it? You know, we can be all wrapped up in our own um, issues here and worrying about when we're going to fly to see our friends, but then we think about refugees all over the world who have no home, who have no political safety, who have no um, security of the future, and and a sense of just the community and, and, and being able to thrive in a very kind of fundamental way um, is very disturbing. And so I'd love you for you to share your research and how we can kind of understand a little bit more clearly what, um, what it means to be a, a refugee in the sense of the concept of belonging, um, specifically from the Rohingya's perspective. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. And um, I think um, during the COVID situation, many would relate to uh, the situation, I remember there was a meme uh, when the lockdown started, like now you understand how it feels like to um, be in prison or be in, um, be in lo- like being right. caged, feel like yeah. caged. Yeah. Uh, it, it has been one year um, since we are locked down. We are not uh, visiting our friends, our families. We're not, um, we're not in, you know, we're not able to, uh, keep up our connections, social connections, and our daily life. And there are also restricted movement. While these issues are not normal to us, and we are calling it new normalness, right? Yeah. But in the camp, it is it is the reality. It's a different uh, situation. It's a different thing to read about uh, camp people, camp dwellers, that their life, th- their lives living in limbo. Uh, 
um, and it's another thing to feel and experience and and to see those people. So, so I visited the camp uh, first in two thousand seventeen, and it was a shocking experience to uh, watch people uh, living in a uh, living in a congested area and a squattered um, cluttered in a squatter. Um, which is a makeshift settlement. And in each squatter, there are five to six people and they don't have any access uh, to safe, uh, to fresh water, to safe sanitation. Those facilities which, which are very accessible, available to us um, on a daily basis. And many people, um, I'm not saying that to all of the people um, in the world, there, there is a safe access, there is an access water and sanitation but uh, for those people who are living in the camp the situation is quite dire um, they're living the bare lives uh, who does not have access to um, even live let alone um, to act let alone the access to water and sanitation to yeah. to help the living so uh, it was quite shocking experience to see them and experience that feelings that you, your movement is restricted. You cannot uh, go out of the camp. You are, you have to live there, and you, you, you don't have any access to a living. Uh, the situation started um, in Bangladesh, uh, not uh, in 2017. Many people think that it's a recent situation, but things have been happening uh, since 1982. Um, and even before that, so there, uh, there were a couple of mass exodus from Myanmar um, to Bangladesh and people um, uh, from Myanmar, um, Rohingya people, they have, they have fled to the from the persecution in Myanmar. It has started um, in the 60s and 70s and also in the 80s after uh, especially um, the 1982 citizenship law. And there was a change in the constitution in Myanmar, um, which actually stripped off the citizenship of Rohingya people and uh, their citizenship status were denied. And instantly they became a stateless people. And, um, and their right to give birth, the right to marry, their right to, uh, right to go to a school, uh, medication, everything were, was denied and they were, uh, restricted uh, to a place, they couldn't go out of that place. And they continued struggling and there were a couple of uh, pushed out from the Myanmar government or from the local people. It's actually, um, it's actually quite ambiguous, uh, the situation, what the situation was in Rakhine. But uh, uh, Rohingya people say that there was persistent uh, persecution from Myanmar government. And then they have uh, fled from Myanmar a couple of times since 1982 to Bangladesh. But over I time, have, yeah, sorry, yeah. I just want to say it was quite a violent push out though, right? I mean, many, many yeah. people died mm. during this. I mean, it wasn't just like a, a, a fleeing of, 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 of right of, of yeah. freedom, right? So they were violently assaulted. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that happened vehemently, I think in 2017, but also before that, but th those were not always um, mentioned in media, but there were a uh, couple of times they were mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so it first happened, I think in 1999, there was a huge exodus, but um, 
in 2000 as well in early 2000 um there was a repatriation program as well so many of the rohingyas who came many could go back who could return to myanmar but many stayed so there were people uh, who were living in the camp over 20 years so 20 years yeah yeah over 20 years so there wow. was a so there is a old camp in cox bazar named kutupalang old camp and there is a, there is now many new camps so altogether there are over um 1 million like sort of 1 million. Yeah, that's people. crazy to have almost a million people misplaced or displaced and not having or the question of whether the camp if you had lived there for up to 20 years or more does that become your home or do you resist that? I mean there's so many questions in my mind about the sense of belonging. But I have a question before that that kind of stirred after you talked about um you know just because of their uh identity that the um Myanmar did not recognize so what happens if you marry um outside your group you know if you are married to somebody part of that is that is accepted and acknowledged um from the Myanmar side does that make you more accepted like is there kind of a blurry space for your uh, identity uh, yeah i'm not sure that what was the reason that they were um denied um of their uh, of certain rights like marrying to someone marrying out of the group yeah uh, but uh it could be it could be um it could be a way to retain them uh, within their kind state it could be a way to not mix with other indigenous group mm-hmm. so um so i think they were restricted um of marrying some other indigenous group because then there would be a fear of mixing blood right um, going back to the whole kind of racial purity that we kind of understand from a united states kind of context right but it's the same yeah. thing the idea of this racial purity which is really interesting that it's such a global concept Do you want to share a little bit about what the Rohingya tribe and their culture is or should we just go straight into the life in the camp? I mean, how can you just give a little bit of what distinguishes them? Yeah, of course there are actually many confusions who about who Rohingyas are. I have heard that from many people. I have heard that um Rohingyas uh, speak the language of Bangladeshi. So they are Bengali and they should live in uh Bangladesh and they should not um go back to myanmar uh, such judgment i i would i would call that um that's a different perspective um to see the situation and i think uh, which actually stem from lack of information as well yeah they they um they can speak um uh, bengali language but that's not uh the bengali how many other bengali speaks that's a dialect uh, of bangladesh and um the rohingya situation goes back um refer back to the british colonialism it starts from uh, british period so uh, the history is also very ambiguous and if you read the literature there are actually both type of cases and it's a hard to point out what is actually um the historical um record is about mm-hmm. rohingyas what rohingya says that um they start the history started from uh, british period in the british regime when it was british burma uh british government um hired many people from british india um to 
uh, work in Yangon and many other many other places in British Burma as labor. So they hired labor. So there was a migration from uh, um, British India, and it was I'm talking about the time it was 1823. But after that, Rohingya came um, to British Burma and they settled in. They um, they settled in the Rakhine state, and Rakhine state that time was named as Arakan. And if you ask a Rohingya even now, like what where are you from? They would say Arakan because they refer back to the history um, of British India because they they came that time. They know their history. They are they say that we are Ruhan. Uh, Ruhan is the people where they came from, and um, that was during the time of British India. Uh, so now um, there is no British India. Like uh, there is a lot of history even in British India as well. Bangladesh before uh, 1971, uh, it was part of Pakistan, and before 1947, it was part of uh, India. So um, it, so now it's it will be extremely wrong to say that those people are from Bangladesh. But I understand um, the situ- saying. Um, the reason of saying that, that those people are from Bangladesh. If you ask Rohingyas, where are you from? They don't say that they are from Bangladesh, but they are pretty familiar of Bangladesh. Many of the Rohingyas are pretty familiar of Bangladesh, Bangladeshi language, Bangladeshi culture. And the reason behind that uh, is the border. The border um, where it is uh, now um, or after 90s or even after 2000, the border, uh, what, is, what we see now is it's a restricted uh, situation. It was not like that before 90s. It was a liquid border. So people came uh, to Bangladesh and they crossed the border and there were not border restriction as, as it is uh, now. So the people, so Rohingya people came for medication, came for schooling. So they know the language for business as well. So they came, it was easier actually for, they, for them to come to Bangladesh rather than going to Yangon or many other places um, in Burma. So that's why they keep uh, coming here and there was a cultural mix as well. So they know the language of uh, Bengali and, they, and their language also, pick many words from uh, Bengali language. Can you communicate with them? You can That's speak, how you can. Speak it, Marceline? You speak, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, my accent and my dialect is different, but, but I, I, I can understand them and they can understand me as well. I cannot speak like them uh, because they have a different accent and they have different uh, words, but um, I can understand them. So you um, grew up in Bangladesh. I, I can communicate with them. Okay. Yeah, I grew, grew up in Bangladesh and yeah. uh, they speak in Chittagong dialect, uh, which is the southern part of Bangladesh. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting. So it's, it's important to know. Yeah, I was just going to say you have access to story yeah. because of that unique place that you have from your uh, background, from your ethnicity, right? Um, yeah. But, yeah, um, you know, you bring up the the sense of border, which is so important because that is kind of a sensitive word and important kind of metaphor for so many things um, of what a border does. You mentioned how it used to be more fluid, but like when something clamps down, are we protecting and keeping things in or are we excluding people or are we using that to distinguish the differences you know um, there's so many ways we 
use and abuse this idea of a border to um, to kind of show who's in power and and to kind of perpetually keep people out. And I keep thinking about the border of these camps, you know, um, life in the camp. I think maybe if we, we can take a little break, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about what life means in this camp within this kind of bordered, structured, isolated um, place that is um, so ambiguous because first of all, we don't have much media coverage or news or, or knowledge about what's going on. But at the same time, wondering how people in general in displaced situations and especially under dire circumstances like that, how do you navigate life within such a limited and controlled space? So we'll come back and we'll talk more about the space within the um, refugee uh, camps, I guess you will say, um, from the perspective of your research on the Rohingyas, okay? Welcome back. I am speaking with PhD student Marceline, uh, who is in Finland, but uh, doing deep research continuing on her um, subject of the Rohingyas uh, in Bangladesh in the in the refugee camps. So Marceline, we were talking before about kind of their, a little bit of the historical backdrop, the complexities of their identity today and why they're displaced. And I wanted to talk about what it means to belong and you know, the idea of home for all of most of us is something so secure, we don't even think about it, right? We don't even question what it means because there's that comfort that's just taken for granted that we have someone somewhere to go back to. Um, even if we move somewhere, even when you move to Finland because you were wanted to be with your husband and you're not in the dorms at UH, there's still a sense of your belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And when... Well, so let's go for that. I mean, what is your concept of home? Because I know your family is not living with you right now, but what is home to you? That the question of home and the idea of home always actually perplexed me because the reason is, um, first of all, um, I would like to say that um, I am uh, from Bangladesh. Um, like, like, you know, most of, most of us, how we say that we are originally from Bangladesh. Like quote, quote unquote, yeah. But I am from Bangladesh. Um, I grew up in Dhaka. My family, my father came from uh, Northern district of um, uh, Bangladesh and he settled in, in the capital and I grew up there. So I would say uh, what I learned from my father and from my family that we, we did have a root in our home district, but still we were people on the move like i was i was brought up as a city girl like i was always judged by uh, my you know uh, my grandfather my uh, grandmother that you have become a city girl so we are people on the move and our idea of home is um, quite changing it's it i'm attached to the people uh, more less uh, i'm attached to the people more less with the place, I would say. Yeah. And then in the last five years, if you see, um, I, I lived in um, Hawaii and Hawaii became a second, second home to me. Not because I, it, I had a um, address there because um, I feel connected to Hawaii because I work there. I have affiliation there. Um, I, I had developed friendship there, my social relationships there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why Hawaii became home to me. 
And now I always say that my life is now in suitcase. I don't have any home right now. Um, and now I have moved to Finland because of my relationship, um, because of my relationship to my partner. And now, now I have, I, I just lived here for seven months, seven or eight months, but, but it has become a home to me. The reason is um, I have a relationship here. So um, my belongings um, kind of moved and developed and evolved with my social relationship, I would say. And, but it's not necessarily for every people. People are attached to a place and people yeah. always attach their belonging to a place. And yes. uh, in Hawaii, you'd see that extremely, that they yeah. are attached. Yeah. They, they have a genealogical relationship. They bring the, the island with them. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I learned that from Hawaii. Yeah. And I remember probably you were um, in that class, uh, um, a person from a Maori person probably, she described her identity that how she attached to a mountain, to a river, um, uh, her relationship grew in a place and how she say that, um, that her relationship evolved with a vehicle and that vehicle is different for everyone. For Maori, it's a, for Hawaii, probably it's, it's, a, it's a canoe. So, uh, so how um, people yeah. attach their belonging to things, to place, it differs, it varies. And uh, for me, it's totally different. I, I, my social belongings are attached to my relationship, I would say. Yeah. But for some people, as you mentioned, as we have seen in Hawaii, for some people, it's very much related to a place. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting so, how culture plays a big part of it too. You know, how much that is a part of your identity, especially like we talk about Native um, American, you know, indigenous kind of that, that concept of being part of land and land being part of us as identity is huge. Um, so, you know, and, and also I'm just thinking myself too, having lived in Hong Kong for so many years and that was home for me, even though I grew up in the States, um, maybe because my heart was in that kind of, that energy and soul of that place with those people. I connected with those people, you know, when I, you know, here, I've been here, I've been in Hawaii for about, you know, over six years now. And um, my heart is still quite in Hong Kong. And when I see things going on there with the political situation, my heart aches. And I wonder if that achiness tells me that my home is more connected there than here. I don't know. I mean, it's just an interesting thing. Sometimes you have to be displaced to kind of know it's, you know, like if you separated from a loved one, how much you miss them and how much you don't have them reinforces what, how important that thing is to you, right? You have put it very beautifully, yeah. Um, uh, recently I have been reading about diaspora community and that's the exact definition of diaspora. Like, even they have lived far from their land, they, ha they have always, um, inculcated the urge of going back to their home. They, they have always that hope that they someday will return to their home, but they not necessarily go back, but they yearn for that. And that's a beautiful experience. And yes. yeah, so the detachment bring in, uh, bring out the, you know, the emotions yeah. of yeah. home and belonging. Right. Yeah, true. But going back to your research is the, the detachment of a home 
um, in a violent way, a rupture from your life, you know, to be displaced and not know where home should be or whether you should accept camp as home or whether you should resist that so that you have that ongoing hope that life can exist beyond the camps, that there is somewhere else. This is just a transient place. But like you said before, some people have been living there for like 20 years. And so does that, it becomes home. And how do you make it home? Or should you make it home? There are all these questions about that sense of belonging. Can you talk a little bit about maybe now life in, in these camps and how people have become, based on your experience, you know, looking at them, how, how these Rohingya refugees have managed to find ways to create a sense of belonging within this kind of very, very displaced situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's actually very difficult to think from the perspective of Rohingyas. You know, Crystal, I and you have the luxury to think about and to, um, to romanticize our, what home is. But for Rohingyas who are in the exile, for living in the exile, who are on the move and displaced from their roots, it's difficult for them even to define what home is. And not, Rohingyas are not living um, in the camp in Bangladesh. They are also internally displaced people. So there are IDPs even in Myanmar. So um, there, there, is, there are some great articles about it that when home become camp, so their home is Myanmar, but it's still, it's a camp to them. And in Bangladesh, the situation is different. It's a camp, but it, it becomes perhaps home to them. So right. I'm not sure they, they have the luxury to think about home, yeah. where their home is. But uh, for Rohingyas, because they have um, lived in continuous, consistent persecution, I think the most important thing for them is um, to attach um, to the social belongings and to attach to even um, to say that I'm a Rohingya. Rohingya is a um, denied word and a prohibited word in Myanmar. So no one wow. can is, speak uh, for Rohingyas, even cannot take the name Rohingyas. So for them, it is crucial that uh, crucial to say that we are Rohingyas um, to um, to validate their identity and to have the validity that they are Rohingyas, it is crucial for them. So I think for them, um, their identity um, is most important to them. Mm. Um, and when I see uh, another question of yours that if camp can become a home to them or not. So in 2017, when I went to the camp, before that, I didn't have any idea what a camp can look like. And I slowly uh, started walking in the camp and I didn't realize, oh, I, I am in the camp because um, the camp and the locality, now it's a little bit different, but in 2017, it was um, different from now. In 2017, they were not so much restricted. There were not, um, you know, police um, camps over there to check like whether why you are going in the camp or why you are going out. So now it's a little bit, little bit more restricted than it was in 2017. So in 2017, when I visited uh, the camp and the village, they merged, the boundaries between the camp and the village was blurred. So you couldn't realize when you entered the camp because that was the old camp. 
uh, where people living um, over 20 years. And you'd see people are moving around, people are um, going to other places, they are hopping on bus, they are hopping on rickshaws. Mm. So it seems, it seems normal. So it seems- uh, Whatever normal home. is, right? Yeah, whatever yeah. normal is. And then I started working in and going in the new camp where um, they were still settling in. And you could see that the camp is, you know, is still developing and is still making. They haven't settled in yet. And they have just uh, came uh, from Myanmar. They have just fled to Bangladesh. And some of them have still wounds and you could see um, their physical wounds on their body. And um, so it was so fresh. And I still remember there were kids playing um, in the playground, their, um, their children going to the school and uh, they're having daily conversation in front of a tea stall. And it seems that uh, it's just life evolves. It just mm-hmm. see that they have a kind of develop an adoption uh, they kind of adopt to the situation. They, they kind of think that it is now our place. And when you see, when you ask them that whether you want to go back to Myanmar or not, they would give, uh, some of them would give a, an ambiguous answer. They would say, I don't want to go back if there um, is not a safe return, if um, Myanmar does not return to peace for them it's most important to have the citizenship status their identity back it's, it is what most important to them otherwise they don't even want to return to myanmar they, so, they i think yeah just to clarify are there some of most of them hoping that they will change their uh country regulations so that they can go back or most of them are kind of assuming that they would never go back and that they would prefer to stay where they are I think none of us, um, whether it is Myanmar government, whether it is media, government of Bangladesh, Rohingya, none of us have the clear identity of what the situation would be in the near future, whether Myanmar government would give them the citizenship status or not, because that that would require, require a change in the constitution as well. So, but they can't uh, travel freely into Bangladesh, right? They're still, even though they're in on Bangladeshi land, they're they're mm-hmm. in camps. So their identity there would they never be able to achieve a citizenship in Bangladesh? Like if you're born in the camp, you had mentioned in your research that there are like over a hundred, you know, babies mm-hmm. born like all every oh, day. Oh, that that number is yeah, astronomical, exactly. actually, very high. So what happens to these people who are born in this kind of limbo area space? Yeah, that was the first question when I visited in the camp. Like because uh, in Bangladesh, according to the constitution of Bangladesh, people who are born in Bangladesh, they they should have the citizenship. They should provide the citizenship status. But what happens? Camp is treated as a state of exception. Uh, camp is a different territory. It, it is within the territory of Bangladesh, but it is not under the jurisdiction of Bangladesh. It is in, like, you know, like it is inclusive, inclusive but it, it is also excluded from the territory. So I, I don't think the constitutional rule 
of Bangladesh apply to the camp. So I, so Bangladeshi people, even those babies who are newly born, Bangladeshi government, Bangladesh government treating them as refugees, not even refugees. Bangladesh government hasn't still gave them the status of refugees. All of the refugees, um, they are now in registration process and they are registered as displaced people of Myanmar, which is different than the refugee status. Wow. I mean, so it's, it's tricky political situation. Yeah. And to be in perpetual limbo is something, mm-hmm. again, going back to our concept of belonging and home is so unsettling. It's just... Um, I, I don't even know how, like you say, to feel for that. Let's take one more quick break with that kind of hovering thought of questioning that sense of uncertainty and, and insecurities and moving forward. I'd like to, in the next part, address um, more gender issues and how gender plays out in these kind of um, specific environments that are so closed off, but still having a microcosm of life as people continue to live and socialize, right? So mm-hmm. uh, don't go away. People who are listening, we are. I'm talking with Morseline about um, the Rohingya situation in uh, Bangladesh. Back with my very interesting and important conversation conversation with PhD student Morseline Moji. I never knew how to pronounce that right. <laughs> yeah, you're pronouncing it right. Yeah, Moji. <laughs> yeah. In Finland, um, I, I became Moid though, because <laughs> Jay is pronounced like Y. Yeah. It's Are you learning any Finnish? No, not at all. It's the <laughs> difficult, most difficult language in the world. I bet. <laughs> well, to give you a little more sense of foreignness, you should try to dive into that language. Um, but, you know, culture is everything. And I think the fact that we can talk about what's going on with Rohingya refugees, or like you clarified, it wasn't even refugee status, it's displacement. Um, you know, to talk about a different place and us with perspective and context of who we are and how we've become um, our, what shaped our identities in addressing what's going on in this camp are all important aspects of bringing together and weaving together these conversations. I also wanted to share with you, I didn't mention it before that when I was living in Hong Kong, um, I had been, I spent time uh, volunteering at a Vietnamese refugee camp. So in the early 90s, there, you know, there was still a lot of political turmoil. And there are still many, many boat people who kind of kind of uh, established a temporary camp situation in Hong Kong, because the government offered these camps, there were several camps. So I used to go every week to help, I used to teach dance to these preteen girls. And, wow. um, and we created product little performances within like a different camp. And I got sponsorship because I was in the entertainment field. So I got sponsorship from a brand like Esprit and they got these like new outfits and then they got to perform it in the different camps. And it was such a, an incredible experience because first of all, to get an inside look at what life would be in a camp as in living a normal life, so to speak, right? As you kind of try to maintain some sense of social um, well-being and also trying to understand the political situation because most of them know they would never be able to go home. But in the end of the day, just to recap what happened, the government, the Hong Kong government decided to just shut it down, the whole program. So they did end up sending all the refugees who had come in hope to be, um, you know, a chance to go into a different country like Canada or United States. It was completely shut down. And so all of them who were remaining in the camp had to go back to Vietnam and who knows what happened to their situation there. So it makes you think, wow, to be displaced, to find a sense of belonging and then being stripped of it again 
to go back to a place that kicked you out to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it just makes you wonder. And for me to see work with these young girls is to think about how women navigate spaces like this, because within these spaces, there are lots of issues for women. There's safety. There's exactly mm -hmm. there's sexual um, privacy and and your body and what do you do with feminine hygiene? I'm thinking of all these things. So if you could share a little bit more about your thoughts on how gendered the camp space is and how the women try to navigate these spaces. Yeah, sure. Um, I think women and children are the most vulnerable people when it comes to living in the dire situation. And when people are living in exile, uh, yeah, women are in the most vulnerable situation, of course. And um, as, I, as you have also mentioned that uh, per day, uh, 130 babies are adding to the population, uh, new babies. So uh, yeah, the one concern would be the reproductive health. Uh, most of the Rohingyas does not want to take um, any contraception or does not uh, does not believe in the uh, reproductive, uh, you know, maintain the reproductive health. Uh, so it has been a challenge for the government of Bangladesh and many international um, organization. Um, to educate the women about um, how to be healthy and how to take care of um, reproductive health or uh, how to take care of a pregnant woman or how to take contraception. And also, uh, also it was a challenge uh, for, for many um, health practitioners um, to, to, to eliminate those, you know, to eliminate those uh, believe that uh, rituals or religious belief uh, which are barrier to um, accept the contraception or adopt the contraception. So yeah, those challenges uh, still remain. Um, there, there are definitely health issues, but there are also uh, different issues um, going in the camp. One, um, I would say, think about the camp. Um, there are great articles about how um, government organization and non-government organization and how humanitarian perspective gendered the refugees. So what happens in the camp? In many culture, um, men are assumed to be the bread, bread earners. Men are uh, assumed to provide the family, but in the camp, they'll lose their role. They, their role of providing for the family, earning bread or uh, protecting the women or protecting the children those is not valid anymore. So they don't have such work and role in the camp. Uh, on contrary, the government organization or non-government organization or the hosting estate are um, taking up those roles. So they are providing and protecting the women or providing the, for the health of the women or protecting um, the women or, or the child in the camp. So what does the men do? So there are also great articles about it, about the traumatized masculinity um, of men in the camp and what um, affect um, the situation uh, from the traumatized masculinity is that men often um, beat women in the camp and be because of the traumatized situation, because they go through such traumatizing situation, they often beat women in the camp. And 
that's one thing. There is that domestic violence. That's one issue. And another issue is the safety of the women. So there have uh, been many reports, many such cases where women were abducted, uh, girls were abducted, little girls were abducted from the camp, and they have been lured to prostitution as well. So um, to protect the children, to protect the girls uh, from uh, prostitution or from abduction, what parents do often, they have their children married in a very young age. How because old, how young are you think, talking about? Sorry? How young are we talking? Um, below, I, so I have seen um, of probably 14 or 15 mm. um, age. Um, so, so yeah, that's one issue. Uh, so uh, I'll tell you my experience. I, 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 I came to know a family uh, there was a there was a little girl living in the um, camp, and uh, I, I was talking to her father, and the father said that, of course, it's a better choice because I cannot protect my girl in the camp, and it, it, once she is abducted, no one is going to marry her, and she would become a burden to the family. And also I have to think of other children, of other girls as well. So if I cannot um, have my, my one girl married, how can I, you know, what will I do about the other girls? So that's become most worrying thing for the parents. So, so, so they have the children married in very early age. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the situation in the camp um and yeah. and that per- i mean i don't know if that's always been you know culturally the case of the position of the women as not ever having a choice but this kind of perpetuates that right it, it, it reinforces their lack of um choice in their position and to navigate their own space they, they just don't yeah, yeah. I, I i think so culturally i i think so that um First of, first to start with, they don't have much education to understand what women's right is. What uh, if women has a choice um, in um, getting married or uh, giving birth? Um, I don't think uh, most of the women, um, women's decision are um, valued um, in, let alone in the camp, let alone in the camp, but in also in Rakhine, in Myanmar. Uh, I don't think they're, uh, when they were living in Myanmar, their their decisions were valued so much. Uh, that's one thing, and that comes uh, and develops with a religious belief as well, um, because that's denied um, to adopt contraception. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that uh, when they are living in the camp, uh, they are unable to protect themselves. Uh, they're relying so much on the government organization. They're relying so much on the reliefs uh, and whatever facilities um, are available in the camp. So they, they, the choices are also very diminished. They don't almost have a choice. So whatever their parents are saying to them, if, if, it, secures, um, if, if it secures the meal of the day, they will do that. Um, so Is there maybe a reverse um, way of this of looking at the strength of the woman in that because you mentioned how the men are kind of like these um, as you called it traumatized masculinity and, and resulting in a lot of domestic violence is that do women come come forth and create space for themselves 
or, um, you know, somehow empower themselves because women are like that. They, they find ways to be resilient and to find ways to maybe to some extent create some kind of a, a life that, that makes it um, not so um, victimized. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there were things like that. Do we, did women, are there examples of women who come out to create interesting, like, I don't know, um, little organized groups that kind of help each other, the support system? Of course, I think there is potentiality um, to be resilient, but how, but if you think of resiliency, how resilient resilience developed, it it has there has to be some resources to develop resiliency. There has to be um, some education about it. There has be, they have to know about their potentiality as well that they can be resilient. They have agency to um, evolve, they have agency to make a decision. They have, they are autonomous people, but how, like it is easy for us to learn and, um, you know, educate ourselves because we have so many resources, not just the internet, media, we can talk to people, but Rohingyas have limited choices. Uh, they, even the people who work in the camp as a staff, like humanitarian workers, they, they live in the camp for, for a limited time. They go there, work there, and they leave the camp after um, uh, evening. Uh, so they don't have, like women in the camp, they don't have much access to learn and educate themselves and also to learn about the potentiality that how should, you know, um, how should you um, can empower yourself? So empowerment, the knowledge of empowerment is a thing that you you should actually. Someone has to learn. Someone has to you know grow to the grow to that knowledge. It's not easy to learn about empowerment by just themselves. Right. And so, are there any women's groups who go in there um, on any level to try to address these issues? From what I have seen in the camp, there are um, some spaces that the government has made and many other international organizations has made just to talk about their psychological trauma that can come from persecution, that can come from domestic violence. That, that's a, probably a safer space to talk about uh, their trauma, their memory, their identity, or whatever they are going through psychologically, emotionally. But... The issues that women deal on a daily basis and that requires a change in the culture. Um, and Rohingyas lived in persecution for so long time. They have, uh, they didn't have even access to the right of education. They couldn't. So all of them were denied of education after high school. So they don't have um, the access to learn things. So that's how it's difficult to bring a change in their culture and change in the perception. I, and I don't think um, the government or any other organization taking any initiative, you mm -hmm. know, to educate it for the empowerment is. So what, um, what women livelihood is or how you should speak up. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't, that we don't, they don't have the privilege to even have that. Exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. We need to kind of, remind ourselves how privileged we are to be able to speak now about somebody else's situation, right? Mm -hmm. It's that perspective. Um, I want to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, no, no. Just, that reminds me just one thing. So um, 
when I went to the camp, uh, all of the most of the Rohingya women, they wear hijab, they cover their head with a scarf or uh, they wear burqas. So it's, uh, so it's also religious. Um, it's also the religious belief as well. So what I wanted to mention that when um, humanitarian agency work in the camp, they, they should and they value the cultural uh, beliefs of refugees. It happens not just in the Rohingya camp, in any other camp. So they wouldn't try to um, intervene in those uh, cultural beliefs that you should do that or you should not, should not do that because humanitarian um, uh, workers are always very careful, like not to traumatize them anymore, not to, uh, not to um, make a rupture in their memory or their identity. So whatever their identity is or whatever their cultural belief is, they always respect that. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think it's really important to mention that. Um, so, you know, on a humanitarian level, if I can try to wrap up this very heavy discussion about their situation of the Rohingyas um, in Bangladesh is that in light of all these complex elements and, and, and these um, Rohingyas trying to navigate life and trying to normalize, if that's even possible, um, life in this perpetual um, uncertainty and liminal space, what are concerns that you, you know, based on your research that we should be addressing kind of like from a more, um, I guess, humanitarian perspective, because that's all we can do, right? You know, um, what do you want us listeners to think about and what do you think should be addressed? There's so many levels of concerns. It's, um, it's, it's a difficult question, first of all. Yeah, I think like what, I want to do with my work. I would, I, I would like to mention that first. I think what most of the academicians who want to do, uh, or who are working on refugee issues and migrant issues and immigration issues, uh, the motive is to change a perception. Uh, how do you see refugees or how do you see uh, migrants or how do you see immigrants or how do you even see and understand nation states? I think um, I would, um, I would request the speaker to think to, to the audience uh, to think more about uh, what refugee is and how we define refugees. And uh, when you are saying, like many of the Bangladeshis would also say that, you know, we are hosting refugees. We become instantly the host state and they become the guest. So they don't have, uh, so the currently uh, the Rohingyas who are living in Bangladesh, they're temporarily there. So they know that. Rohingyas know that and Bangladeshis know that and Bangladeshi would do whatever they can do to repatriate Rohingyas and, um, and, and to make them return to their country. Um, and when I'm saying their country and whether they want to go back or not, they would pressure them they are, or encourage them to return because it's not their place. They have been saying Bangladeshi government, Bangladeshi government and also um, many people of Bangladesh, they think of themselves as, as host state. And when we are uh, saying, stating that we are host, the other person uh, become guest. And it's also uh, reiterating the same um, dynamic of um, us and them. We are recreating the boundaries again and again. So I would think about that, that we are always not don't think ourselves as us. And when we define us, how we define us, 
it's also important to think about uh, because the definition of us is ever changing and the definition of us is not does not depend on us it depends on the nation state or someone else who are in the power position so uh, we need to think about the definition clear, clearly and carefully that how we define refugees how we define migrants how we define immigrants it reminds me of that book that we had to read in um feminist theory, uh, Abu Lagod, what was it called? Uh, Do Muslim Women Need Saving? Do you remember that book we read? No, can you remind me that? Yeah. Well, maybe that wasn't in, no, but that was in another classic. No, I, was, I was not in that. Yeah. yeah. No, you were. But anyway, it was a, a really interesting book about, uh, it's called Do Muslim Women Need Saving? Abu Lagod, and um, questioning our position, like you had mentioned, you know, why is it, you know, we have this very Eurocentric way of thinking that we can save you and Ooh, we exactly. need to disrupt yeah. that kind of way of understanding people in displaced situations. So trying to get ourselves to, to shift perspective is, is, a, is a difficult one, but an important one. And I think listening to you, um, sharing your research and your experience and your opinions on this um, shed really important light on this invisible issue. Because again, it's been quieted down, media hasn't covered it. People forgot about the Rohingya situation because it's not in the news, you know? So it's really important to keep reminding ourselves of so many things that happen, even though we don't see it in our faces in mainstream media and and our world around our the comfort of our you know immediate lives yeah yeah i want to share one story if you if i may okay. i want to wrap up the discussion okay. with one story one time i was teaching about rohingya situation in a class and it was undergrad class and i was talking about rohingya issues and everyone became so sympathetic about rohingyas and uh, one of the students say that, okay, then what's the future of Rohingyas? Uh, what's the solution of, of the situation? And uh, I said, you tell me what's the, situ- what's the solution. Uh, can we bring them here, do you think? And s- instantly she changed um, her voice and she, and she said like, no, we cannot because we have a housing problem here and we have such and such issues. We cannot bring them here. And, and that, then when, uh, that's the time when I mentioned like, see how you have changed your positionality. You were sympathetic about them and instantly you have changed your position. You became we and the Rohingyas became them. And uh, you not necessarily should care about them. You are more concerned about we. So yeah, that's interesting how we develop these categories in our everyday life. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and that's just an important story because it relates back to what's going on with the country now. I mean, in the States now is, you know, this, this concept of identity and who belongs, who's American and why immigrants and refugees are a threat to our situation. Exactly. You know, why, you know, that's very problematic the way we address things. And so I really appreciate this conversation with you. So, um, Marceline, thank you so much for your time. And I'm wishing you luck with the remaining part of your program and looking forward to great strides in your research in making a difference in this troubling world. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me speak and inviting me in your show. Yeah, I have enjoyed a lot. Thank you. That's Marceline Mojid. 
graduate student, PhD student in the Department of Sociology. 